What have the Romans ever done for us? Hi, and welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. My name is Neil, and in this episode, we're discussing Leptis Magna, a city on the northern shores of modern-day Libya. We'll also be discussing one of its most famous sons, the Roman Emperor Septimius Severus. I use we because I'm joined by Maria Lloyd, who studied and is studying Leptis Magna and Septimius Severus. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. Thanks, Neil. Great to be here. Before we start, if anyone's really interested in, in, in getting in touch with you or, or reading about what you're doing, where they can find you. Yeah, great. Well, uh, I need to get better at social media, to be honest. But the main places where you can find me are Twitter, where I'm at Maria T. Lloyd. And I tend to tweet about anything to do with Septimius Severus and Lepkis Magna. My LinkedIn account, which is Maria Teresa Lloyd. And I've also got a website, which I'm just launching called MariaTeresaLloyd.co.uk. And that's where all my updates on things I'm going to be doing are going to be uh, shown going forwards. I just want to ask you, exactly how you ended up getting into this area because it's quite a specific area and mm. it's always interesting to know how people end up studying in a, in the, the area or field that they've chosen. Initially I became interested in history really when uh, I was in school and the film The Mummy, do you remember the one with Rachel Weisz and Brendan Fraser? Yep. So yeah when that film came out at the cinema I absolutely loved it. I saw it three times bought the DVD, thought it was absolutely great. And I became really interested in Egyptology. And when I went to university, I thought I need to be sensible. I don't know what I want to do. I need to keep it broad <laughs> and not so niche. So that's when I decided to do history and ancient history. But after my first year, I wasn't really enjoying the history side. So uh, I decided just to focus on the ancient history. After my undergraduate degree, I took a year out before my MA and went to work as a visitor services assistant at the British Museum. And when I was thinking about how to start specialising for my MA, I spoke to a curator uh, just for general advice. And actually, he gave me some really good advice. He said, don't do anyone like Augustus or some of the, shall we say, the really popular topics and people that have been done to death because there is so much out there already try and find someone who hasn't had so much done on them someone who people yeah. aren't so aware of and then go from there and that's how i ended up looking into septimius severus and to be honest i've never looked back i think he's wonderful that's a very interesting story and if anything i can kind of echo that approach not at the level that you've achieved but at the sort of podcasting blogging level, because I tend to try and find things that I don't read elsewhere or don't hear about. Definitely. Well, it's, I think it's really important nowadays as well, because everyone has access at their fingers to a lot of information. So I think it's important to give everyone something which they may have not come across and something that will interest them, something that they can look into if they're more interested later on. Oh, I completely agree. What got me into sort of Greek myth, which is where it all started, was Clash of the Titans, the original Clash of the Titans with the Harryhausen effects. Even to this day, if I hear a rattlesnake, I think it's going to be Medusa. Now, when it comes to Leptis Magna, we're talking about several things because Leptis Magna was obviously what we term the Roman settlement or the Roman city, but it was something before Rome got involved. And it's important to recognise that. It's important to understand that. And, and to that end, what 
do we know or what can you tell us about Leptis Magna prior to Rome getting involved? Definitely. It's it's an interesting thing, actually, because we are very familiar with the ruins, which cover a very short period of time. I'd say maybe the first two centuries AD, given what we can see nowadays, modern ruins that attract everyone. But in fact, yeah. it, it's, pre- it's preceding history goes back to around uh, the first the start of the first millennium so about 1000 or 800 bc so it has a lot more history that we don't know about than it has history that we do know about and that's and that's something that if you're an ancient historian you have to be comfortable with yes definitely because you've got to accept that you are not going to have you can look at the evidence uh you can you can surmise things you can put forward your theories but it has to be based on the evidence and if there is no evidence or very little evidence then Yes, you're just going to have it to accept that you are going to be able to put something together. What can we say then in this period? What are the thoughts or ideas of how the settlement was and how it developed? Yeah, well, it initially started, I think, around 800 BC as a trading post for Phoenicians who came from the east. So they used this little place, perhaps initially as a seasonal trading post. But around 800 BC, we know that the more permanent settlement was established uh, around this point. Then based on excavations, we know obviously that there was this Phoenician influence from the east. We also know that there was a Greek influence. Uh, we know this because there is some Corinthian pottery that was found at Lepkis. So that was around 500 BC, I believe the Corinthian pottery was sort of dated to. Following some Greek influence as well, this is where Carthage really comes into the picture. Lepkis was under Carthaginian domain and they gave a tribute of a talent a day to Carthage. So it was really under Carthaginian influence until the Third Punic War when Rome defeated Carthage. And at this point, Lepkis and the region came under Numidian influence so it really stays under there until the Jugurthine war and then it goes under roman influence uh, although lepkis is isolated it may have been under different cultural influences it yeah. was largely left alone so from carthage numidia they had influence over it but it was left to its own devices largely which i think has a big part to play in what happened later on so when does it when do things start to get real in terms of rome exerting its power influence and and I suppose again taking it under its control in whatever form that was well I think everything really starts to kick off under Augustus because this is where you start to see a very spate of what you would class as Roman buildings pop up so for example the theatre was erected you have the baths that were erected in the middle of the second century AD, you have an amphitheatre, you have a circus, you have all these, shall we say, the trappings of what you would normally class as a standard uh, Roman uh, city that pop up. I have a, a nice inscription to link all of that in by a person called Hannibal Tapapius Rufus. He was a trader and former magistrate of the area. He set up some public buildings and then put up an inscription mm. And this inscription said how great Augustus was, used all his honorific titles. It dates to 8 BCE, by the way, just in case I haven't included that. And it also had it in Punic and Latin. So not only do you have the fact that he was a native who took on a Roman name or took on parts of a Roman name, but when he establishes the fame and the sort of the importance of Augustus, he does so both in Latin and in in Punic, the sort of, I suppose you'd call it the Mm. local language. 
these these bilingual inscriptions are really fascinating. Again, much to, much ilk has been spilt, shall we say, over these inscriptions. And obviously, Roman culture overall its influence on Lepkis. For example, you have the original colonial ideas where Roman culture is seen as superior, and so people must have had to. Uh, want to be part of this Roman Empire. But then you have this, obviously, this resistance pushing back with later studies that have come to the fore to say, actually, there wasn't as much like love for the Roman culture as people think. I think nowadays there is more of a, a mix, shall we say, between the two and more of a focus on, on globalization and the connection between uh, the balancing of identities between the local identity and then the actual place of Lepkis or, or whichever town it was or individual in the larger Roman world. Perhaps you can talk about the Roman expansion within it. It's hard to say the direct influence because there were no colonists, really. You have a, evidence of a couple of people. There was a T. Herennius, there was a banker, a Roman banker who was at Lepkis. You have evidence of the Fulvi family. Uh, who were a Roman family also come to Lepkis. They were probably traders. So you do have evidence of a couple of Roman families coming to Lepkis, but there was no large influence of colonists, as you'd probably get with some other places. In, in terms of the buildings within Lepkis, what do we have early on to mm. suggest that the Rome Romans had, had looked at it and decided they was going to upgrade or develop the area? Well, it's interesting because you have the theatre and the theatre is interesting because, as you said, it was erected by uh, Hannibal to Papius Rufus. And this actually was erected not long after, was it the theatre of uh, Pompey or there was there was a theatre in Rome. So it was erected not long after uh, one of the theatres in Rome. So it, it sort of suggests, to be honest, uh, especially given the little temple that was erected inside the theatre later on which again reflects a theatre in Rome that Lepkis the inhabitants of Lepkis shall we say are the ones who are keeping their ears to the ground who are paying attention to Rome so it gives the impression that they're the ones who are really leading this they are the ones with the wealth they are the ones uh, erecting the inscriptions to what extent the inscriptions were erected as you said these bilingual inscriptions are they erected just because it's a purely administrative point of view? Is it the locals saying, oh, yes, we are doing this because we want to make a point of showing that we want to be part of this uh, Roman Empire? We are allies of Rome. We want to show that we are part of it, this large community, shall we say? Because obviously, when you think about inscriptions anywhere, uh, if you think about the modern viewer, for example, going into a museum, how many of us actually pay attention to who dedicated a gallery? Very Every true. gallery you go in has uh, an inscription saying it was dedicated you know, by some person or other, some sort of benefactor. And if that was you, you'd be like, wow, my name's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but then if you actually pay attention, it's like when I was working in visitor services, people do not look above the doors. They're looking at the art the text labels so to what extent this is done on a more formal level as an admin and to what extent the local person was actually viewing them they're, they're two very different approaches so there's obviously restructuring going on within the cityscape itself it would have changed and i know that in the sort of first and second centuries ad we find more and more farms pop up in the areas outside and these farms are quite substantial buildings and they're often have oil olive oil and wine making facilities as well added to them so you start seeing almost a growth outside yes i mean you hit the nail on the head there i mean the olive oil is really for lepkis 
where everything is at, I think, because the olive oil, we know that Lepkis had a very large olive oil production in place by Caesar's time, because when Lepkis, unfortunately for them, sided with Pompey in the Civil War, Caesar versus Pompey, Caesar punished them afterwards by saying that they had to give a donation of a million litres of olive oil a year to Rome. Now, obviously, to produce that as an extra on top of what the town themselves, that is a huge amount. And so this olive oil is where the town's wealth, the the elite's wealth in the town, that's where it's coming from. And if you look at inscriptions in the town as well, they mention actual figures and amounts that were being spent on buildings and statues. And these figures are not small numbers they are huge numbers so Lepkis really was one of the leading cities of this area at the time too it showed I think the olive oil really put it in place and set it up for being able to attract Rome's attention and then to be able to get into the Roman political center shall we say so really make a difference later on it still had rivals and one of those uh, peoples that interacted with it did so on behalf of a rival and that was the the Garamantes. And the Garamantes were a people who lived in the Fezzan, which is south of Libya. I think the capital was around mm. 800 kilometres south of Monday, or then Leptis Magna, so it was quite mm. a distance. I've written a piece on this on my blog, which I'll stick in the, in the show notes. But they also accessed the trading routes that sat below. Mm. So it would have been an exchange of goods, would have been exchange of ideas, general cultural aspects, and all of this would have fed up at various level to Leptis Magna, which really goes to show even more so what an interesting place it was. Rome and ancient Rome isn't always about the central Mediterranean. Definitely. And uh, I think that's the interesting point, actually, with the Garamantes and the relationship with Leptis Magna and why Leptis probably felt that they they needed uh, help from Rome to begin with. So Rome could help them with defence issues because obviously as an isolated town, Leptis didn't have its own army it had uh, i think possibly erected a, a wall around itself for protection later on but it didn't have its own army so it needed the military support of rome so in ad 70 and during the reign of vespasian when uh, lepris was having particular trouble with its neighbor Weir, uh, or modern tripoli shall we say just to lepris's north the weans managed to get the garamantes to do a raid on lepris and this is when lepris called on rome for help and i think the governor uh, Festus, or was it Fakus? Festus came, and that's when he drove the Garamantes away to help Lepkis. And interestingly, near Slitten, uh, you have a villa, and in the villa there were some lovely paintings, uh, images on the wall, and one of them shows uh, the theatre, and it's been suggested that in the theatre, these a couple of individuals that have been, well, put to death, shall we say, by wild animals, I think it is at the time, are actually Garamantes that have been captured during Festus's expedition against them when uh, they attacked Lepkis. Before we go any mm. further, I, I dare say people have probably heard this and wondered. I say Leptis and you say Lepsis. I'm assuming that I'm wrong. No, you're absolutely not wrong. And both are correct. Fine, I think okay. Different. I think for one thing, Leptis... It's really what especially you think you especially find in Italy and Italian scholarship, which ah. is obviously important because the Italians are the ones that did a lot of the expeditions. Right, okay. When so that's one way of saying it. I only say Lepkis because it's nearer the original Phoenician. Right. 
Lepkis did produce coins initially for themselves uh, around the time of Augustus and Tiberius. Okay. And on the coins, you have the Phoenician, uh, you have Phoenician letters L, P, Q, and Y. That's not how they look, but they're Phoenician letters. And that's to symbolize the town, Lepkis. Ah. Yeah. And actually, just to add on to that, the reason why we, Lepkis is on the coins, but we say Lepkis Magna because there were two different Lepkises. So there was Lepkis Magna. And there was another smaller one, I think, uh, I can't remember where it was now. Tunisia. Is it, Tunis- it modern-day yeah. Tunisia, I should say. And that was Leptis, Leptis Minor. So that's just to avoid confusion. We, we kind of looked at the first century, and really mm-hmm. everything's kind of leading up to Septimius, who, yes. as I said, he's a native of, of Leptis Magna. He becomes the Roman emperor. What do we know about him prior to everything happening? Severus was born in the middle of the 2nd century AD, AD 145 to be precise, about 10 years or so after the Baths of Hadrian are erected. So uh, Severus is grown up in Lepkis, where he's surrounded by all these buildings and trappings of Roman life. He was education, he was taught Latin and Greek, so uh, he had what you'd call like the uh, elite sort of education. And he stayed at Lepkis until he was about 18 years old. And then he went to Rome and he was uh, inducted into the Senate. And this was at the uh, encouragement of Severus's relative, Caius Septimius Severus, who was also at Lepkis. And this goes to show that from the off, let's just say that uh, although I'm going to say later on that Severus was uh, nothing unusual, he was not by any stretch of the imagination just your average Joe Bloggs. He was from a very wealthy, uh, respected Lepkitanian family. He had connections in the Senate, so that's why he was able to get a position. And then he followed what you'd class as the normal senatorial hierarchy, where he became a quaestor. Uh, he then became a, a legate in the East and a Pertinax. I'm sure we'll mention him later on. And then he became a governor in Gaul. So there was nothing really unusual. This was what you would expect from someone who was following the hierarchy. In terms of his background, the Punic line was through, was it his father or his mother? So his father, Publius Septimius Gator, he was, he, his line was Punic. And then his mother, Fulvia Pia, her line, I don't know if you remember earlier, I said that there was a family of the Fulvi. Oh, who, okay. That's where his mother's line right. came from. His mother's line was uh, Roman uh, settlers. His father's line was Punic. I mean, how he got to be an emperor is a, a story of itself. Yes. So if you yes. if you want to sort of try and give us a, a sort of an overview of how it all came about. Mm. Well, it's, it's again, this is one of those stories where you start to say it and you're like, this is... People aren't going to believe this, but it's, honestly, it's true. So Commodus was killed on New Year's Eve. So uh, 192, the very end of 192. So start of AD 193. This is where it all happens. So Pertinax, if you remember the guy that I mentioned earlier, the one yep. that set the legate under, Pertinax was made uh, emperor by Lytus and, and Marcia. So these were the two individuals who had been holding a lot of control under Commodus. Pertinax was made emperor. He was emperor for, I think, a grand total of three months before he was killed by the Praetorian Guard. And 
this is when you have a, a truly remarkable incident, actually. It, it's, it's hard to believe that it actually happened. But you had two individual assenters who, after hearing about Pertinax's death, went to the Praetorians who were putting the empire up for auction. So effectively, they said, we are going to give the empire control of the empire to whoever gives us the most money. So uh, you have Didius uh, Julianus, and then you have this other guy who's effectively Pertinax's father-in-law. So needless to say that they did have a bit of bidding, but I don't think it's a, a surprise to anyone that Didius Julianus actually won, because why would you put a relative in control of someone you just killed? <laughs> anyway, Didius Julianus won, and he became emperor in Rome as a centre. But... People weren't happy about this. And so you have other candidates for the throne appearing. Severus is based in Pannonia, so just at the very uh, north-ish of Italy. And he actually, uh, I think he waits about 12, 11 or 12 days after Pertinax is killed. Apparently, I think he was, uh, one of the suggestions is he may have been making sure his children were safe, because obviously you could use someone's children against them in such a battle like this, such a war. He waited and then he made a bid for the throne as well. And this is where I find it's amazing, really. So what Severus did was he then went, he announced he was going to make a bid. He went straight to Rome. Didius was killed and then he became emperor at Rome. And this is where you have then two contenders. So you have Albinus, who's based in Britain, and you have Niger, who's based in the east. Both are influential members and obviously, you can't take on both at the same time. So Severus sent a, a message to Albinus and said to Albinus, I would like you to be my Caesar, my second in command. And at this point, Severus's son was only young. He may have only been, what, four, three years old, six. He was very young anyways, only a small child at this point. So Albinus accepted. And within a month of being at Rome, Severus left Rome and went to the east and had defeated Niger. Obviously, there were a few battles, which we won't go into detail, just bore everyone. But there were a few battles and Severus defeats Niger in the east. Then, just while he's in the east, he has his first eastern war around there. So apparently he's, he wins a few titles and is proclaimed victorious against his, for this eastern war. Then he goes back to Rome. Now, apparently there had been, I don't know the extent to which you can rely on the sources, Severus, whether he ever really intended Albinus to be his successor, it's in question. And again, whether Albinus ever really intended to be a Caesar is in question. But uh, there is uh, suggestions to say that people were encouraging Albinus to take the throne. And in fact, to the elite in Rome, at least, Albinus was a much more... Uh, suitable candidate shall we say he had a long uh, history uh, he had a very good family and then on top of that he was apparently good mannered so then you have albinus versus severus and needs to say there are a few battles again but severus wins defeats albinus and then shortly after that he goes again to the east for another war <laughs> so he is juggling civil wars yeah. with wars at the same time and again many reasons why he could have been doing this one is he may not have wanted just to be known for civil wars he may have wanted to make a name for himself yeah. and do some glory in these eastern wars too but still that's multitasking on a whole other level for me i get the impression and perhaps you'll correct me on this he was foremost a general he seemed to be very much 
about the army. Uh, it's one of the criticisms that I think will come to later. He defeats Parthia, sacks yes. the treasury there, um, which is quite an incredible mm-hmm. achievement. He also creates three, when he's out in around 197, he creates three new legions. Yes. So he adds yes. to them. He's achieved all this, but he also has some involvements with the Praetorians. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything yes. particularly about that, because that's a, that's a, another fantastic scene, as it were. Obviously, as we've seen, the Praetorian Guard had a lot of influence, potentially too much influence, or shall we say certainly too much influence. And this oh, was yes. something, I think as we look at Severus, you realise that Severus may have been many things, but he was very, he was very clever. He he would, I think someone, uh, one of the sources referred to him as someone who's very decisive. He would look at a situation, make a decision and then act on it, which was why I think it's so spectacular that he was able to get to Rome and then juggle two contenders to the throne and Eastern Wars at the same time because he had his goal in mind he knew what he needed to do so the Praetorians clearly were a problem that needed to be solved they clearly demonstrated they had far too much influence and Severus actually disbanded Praetorians uh, and think replaced them and I think I believe it was the Praetorians that were initially made from Romans alone and Severus changed that and I found this quite astonishing he in one moment cashiered an entire the Praetorian Praetorian guard and then as you say rebuilt it because up until that point I think it was Italy Spain Macedonia and Norica which is kind of Austria Slovenia is where that you could be if you came from there you could be Praetorian Guard and he sort of said no you, if you want to be a Praetorian Guard and you want to be in the Praetorian Guard you can come from anywhere so you've got a story involving a horse and I can't resist a story involving a horse so please um, please go with the story involving the horse excellent well I can't remember where this story came from now clearly it was one of the uh, ancient sources but basically when Severus disbanded the soldiers obviously said you know you've, you've got to go and one of the Praetorians apparently their horse who had made uh, quite a bond with the Praetorian, refused to leave and he kept following him. So the story goes, which I hope it's not true, but uh, the story goes that the Praetorian guard slew his horse and then himself, and apparently you have someone commenting that even the horse looked glad to die. So uh, I'm not too sure what they're trying to uh, insinuate. Uh, it's a very niche read on an animal isn't it really it's a typical roman story yeah, it is. Isn't it? You're, you're, it's clearly someone saying something where you're like that that can't be right but it's clearly adding to they're clearly trying to make a point for some reason and also to say that uh, as we said Severus totally changed the army and i think this in some ways was uh, not seen as good for the praetorian guard and you 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 see stories in the ancient sources how he ruined the youth of italy and many then turned to banditry because of his actions because they always had seen the praetorian guard as a way to go career wise but uh, if you actually look at it from as you said a practical point of view disbanding the praetorians was the right way to go about it again some other people may have different thoughts on this but to have a praetorian guard that was more uh, loyal and focused on the emperor as opposed to one that was just focused on the money and uh, looking out for their own interests rather than the interests of shall we say the wider roman world i i think that was quite important what do we what else do we know about him as as a as an emperor well, as we said, the military victories, they happened over the first seven, six, seven years of his uh, reign. So that includes the Eastern Wars and the Civil Wars. So that was a good chunk of his reign initially. 
when uh, everything is done dusted and Severus is someone who doesn't really stay in Rome very much. So as soon as he gets back from his Eastern Wars, I think there's a small gap before he goes uh, to the East and Egypt again. And then at some point, he also goes back apparently to Lepkis Magna in around 202 or so. So apparently, I don't think there's so much evidence for that, but apparently he does visit there at some point in the early, early third century. Sorry, just before you carry on there, he goes back to visit his, his, his home, as it were, where he came from. Mm. And at this point, I suppose it's where we really find Leptis being further developed by him. Absolutely. So when uh, I'm not too sure at which point, but at some point during Severus's reign, he did uh, just like his predecessor, Hadrian, with his hometown of Italica in Spain, Severus uh, implements a building program to to aggrandize, shall we say, his uh, his hometown. And this includes uh, improving the harbour of Lepkis. He also erects a forum and a basilica, uh, a large new one at Lepkis, and uh, a colonnaded street. Uh, there's an infame, a sort of large uh, water fountain. So he has a, a lot of innovations that are uh, built as a way to... Uh, I suppose to improve the aesthetic of the town, really, to make make it really the home or the hometown of a Roman emperor. Which suggests, I suppose, that he, he really did have a connection, even though yes. he'd left it when he was younger. Yes, definitely. And I think, again, I'm not too sure the extent to which we can say, oh, yes, he really liked his hometown. His hometown. He, I don't think, prioritised it in any way. Let's just say that. But certainly, if you think of uh, Hercules and Liber Parter, they are the patron deities, or sorry, they were, they're not still. Anyway, they were the patron deities of Lepkis Magna. And interestingly, and for me, quite significantly, they were the personal deities of Severus as well. So when Severus comes to becoming Roman Emperor, Hercules and Liber Parta actually play uh, an important role on that. Oh. They are mentioned in uh, one of the, I think, the Ludi Saecularis, however you pronounce it, but there's a festival, and they uh, play an important role in that. They appear on, on the coinage of Rome. So, And uh, you see in the sources as well that Severus even built a temple to Liber Parta and Hercules, whether that was in Rome or whether that was in his hometown, I think it's uncertain. But certainly, they did. They suddenly went from being these patron deities of this important city, but still a city within a large empire, shall we say, to being two of the most important deities within the empire because they were the personal deities of the Roman emperor himself. So although you have this idea of to what extent did Rome affect the world, this is where you've got a clear example of how the, the world, as we were saying before, could also have an effect on Rome and how you could use that as a channel. So Richard Miles has written a book called Carthage Must Be Destroyed. And in it, he describes how Hercules was identified with Melkart. He was a, a Phoenician or rather Carthaginian deity. And Hercules became someone who was very identified in, in both Carthage and North Africa. So he was mm. he had, had this link with, with that part of the world. We've got Severus now. He's risen. We know what he's sort of done in terms of his approach to things. And the question then then is, how does it go wrong? Where where does it end and how does it end? 
where he falls down is his family, which is where I think all the soap stories come in for me, really, at least. He had his uh, two sons, Gator and Caracalla. I'm not too sure when it started, but certainly when everyone came to settle in Rome from about AD 203 onwards, when they were in Rome for about a period of five years or so, the boys at this time really did not get on. Apparently, this was encouraged by their their, uh, peers or the servants beneath them. They encouraged this animosity. So the intendants wanted their guy to sort of be the upper guy. So the sons, on the one hand, are not getting on. And then on the other hand as well, you have Caracalla, who on the... uh, this uh, decanalia, the celebration of 10 years of Severus's reign, so around uh, 202, he's made to marry the daughter of Severus's most trusted advisor and friend, Plautianus. So Ser- uh, Caracalla marries Plautilla and apparently he absolutely hates her. Is it right that Plautianus was also from Nectis Magna as well? Yes, and this is where you have in the sources some people say that the relationship between them was Plautianus was more of like his Severus's boy lover. But I, I think that's just stories. But either way, you do have this strong connection between Plautianus mm. and Severus. Clearly, they knew each other mm. uh, since they were at Lepkis. They may have even been, I think, related through Severus's mother's side. So uh, it's Fulvius Plautianus uh, was his name. So they may have been connected yeah. somehow through Severus's mother but Plautianus was very important in Severus's reign and I think how Severus treats him shows how important Plautianus was to him if you look at the sources Plautianus clearly as we were saying before about Praetorians Plautianus had a lot of power he had statues that were also erected to him apparently some of the sources say there were more statues to him than the actual emperors themselves Severus at one point apparently had some statues melted down and then got very annoyed when people got confused and started to melt down all the statues. So, and then obviously uh, Severus uh, lets his son marry Plautianus's daughter. So again, strengthening that connection between them. So Plautianus does have a hold, a strong connection, shall we say, to Severus. And this, unfortunately, I think for Severus, this didn't last for too long because as I said before, Caracalla and even Julia Domna, Severus's wife, who Plautianus didn't get on with either. So considering how much Plautianus liked Severus, he didn't really get on with the family. There are two different versions of the story, but basically at around AD 205, there is some sort of incident where Plautianus is accused by Caracalla of trying to kill the emperors. And this ends up in Plautianus being killed. That's unfortunate because obviously he meant a lot to... Severus and apparently you have this story where uh, one of the guards had plucked some beard, uh, some hairs from Plautianus's beard and gone to Plautilla and Julia Domina and say this, you know, here is your Plautianus and while Julia Domina was absolutely delighted, his daughter was naturally very upset. Yeah again, one of those stories you think are the end of a soap, you know, yeah, that's how they absolutely. <laughs> so uh, but despite the fact that Caracalla wanted to have Plotilla killed. Severus just uh, banished Plotilla and her brother to an island. And they stayed there until, well, until Caracalla did eventually have them killed off when Severus died. So, yeah. yeah, it did eventually happen. But to go back to your original question, where it falls down for me is that the family is very, they don't 
get on particularly. The sons don't get on. Plautianus, this big figure, doesn't get on with the family. Mm. So that's where everything really starts to fracture. And I think this culminates in the final campaign for Severus, which is the campaign to Britain. Yeah, yeah. We th- just yeah. think, I mean, just for a minute there, all the places that he's been. Oh, he's yes. been on, you know, what, three continents? Mm, yeah. He's, yeah, he's just travelled so much. I know that's kind of somewhat incidental, but you think of emperors moving around and just he's he's travelled to so many different places and he ended up, as you say, in Britain. Yes, it's amazing, actually, because, uh, I don't know, maybe he just wanted to tick it off his list because he clearly suffered very severely from gout. So it's surprising. I think you, you hear in the, the sources that he had to be born in a litter for quite a lot of the way. Really? So I think even riding oh. was difficult for him. Yeah, so he, he suffered from, from gout. So whether he he knew he was never coming back from this campaign. Right. We don't know, but I would say given the fact that he traveled a lot before, he was someone who was very used to hardship. Yeah. Uh, you have one of the stories how uh, he was going over the mountains and to set an example for his troops, he went bareheaded in the wind and right. uh, the rain and, and snow. So he was clearly a guy who had faced hardship. He yeah. knew what it was like. So I think he may have known that he was not going to come back from right. this. But given how how much his sons were not getting on. I think at this point, Severus had started to worry for his younger son, Gator, because while Caracalla was Augustus, Gator had been, he was the younger son. He he was made Caesar. Hmm. So for me, it's strange in a way, given how logical Severus was in many ways, that in AD 208, he wrote, uh, elevated Gator's position to Augustus. So now you had three Augustuses. And this campaign to Britain was apparently, if you believe the sources, one of the reasons, yes, certainly may have been for glory. Probably Severus did want to tick it off his bucket list. But another reason would have been to try and unite the sons in some way, given the luxury in Rome. So I think that's another suggestion. Perhaps take them away from the the influences he thought, which might have been negative towards them. Like you say, let's all go. Let's all go camping and get on. Exactly, an extreme version of camping, but yes, (laughs) I think he hoped that it would. And unfortunately, it didn't have the effect that uh, he wanted it to. No. Uh, Severus died in York. That was Eberarchum, as you say in sources. So he died in what we now call York today. He was cremated there. His ashes were placed in a a beautiful purple urn. And then they were taken back to Rome by Julia Domna, his his widow, and they were placed in the tomb of the Antonines, the tomb of Marcus Aurelius. Unfortunately, they have gone missing since then, given the centuries. Yeah. But uh, we know where they were placed. So I find it it's remarkable in a way that you hear the sources say that on the one hand, Severus criticised or didn't think highly of Marcus Aurelius for not doing away with Commodus because he clearly knew what his son was like. Mm. But then if you look at Severus himself, he clearly knew what his sons were like. And not only did he leave Caracalla in the position, he attempted to counter this by having two emperors. Yeah. And if you listen to the sources, apparently they were splitting the palace into two and doing all sorts of crazy things. So it clearly wasn't going to work. And at the end of that year, Caracalla does manage to have Gator killed and you have, again, another dramatic story where he he's dying in his mother's arms and, and asking her, you know, to help him. So a very it's a heartbreaking story. But then Caracalla becomes sole 
emperor and again does away with as we said before his ex-wife Plotilla who's on the island somewhere and there's a lovely little there's the arch of the Argentari in Rome which for me summarizes the Severan reign quite nicely so this arch I don't know if you're familiar with it but it was set up by the silversmiths to the Severan family and is supposed to show loyalty and and uh, everyone together but as the Severan reign uh, wore on first of all you have T- uh, Plotianus being scratched off it and Damnatio Memoriae and then later on you have Gator being scratched off it and then you have Plotilla being scratched off it too so you have this monument that was supposed to be to the to loyalty and to the unity of the Severan family but most of the members by the end of the reign are scratched off it thanks very much for that i i asked out i said you know what do want what do people want to know what do people want to talk about when when we bring this subject up so we had some questions that came back and i think they were on on the large there were excellent questions and really really interesting ones so i just want to start with the first one fire away do we know what septimius personally thought of pertinax and didius well publicly he considered himself as perhaps Pertinatic successor and denounced Didius, he undid most of Pertinax's austerity reforms. I'm not too familiar with Didius overall. I said for me, he's someone who came in and bid for the empire. So there is no demonstrable connection to Severus or what Severus may have thought of him. I I would say overall, Severus perhaps thought uh, he clearly didn't respect him. If he's someone who's just bought the empire, yeah. I don't think you could respect someone like that. It's, it's a very, very good question. It also brings up one of the one of the more painful aspects of ancient history is when people say, what do you think someone so thought of something else? Yes. It's very difficult to find that kind of evidence. We'd love and it. And this is where it's interesting for Pertinax, really, because as we said before, Severus served under him in yeah. the East. I don't know the extent to which that you know how tight that connection was between them but apparently uh Severus's brother may have also served under him mm. i believe in in britain or at some point so there was a connection yeah. there and severus in order to seize power in the first place he styled himself as the avenger right. of pertinax and he adopted his name so okay. if you look at severus's long list of titles uh one of them is pertinax which he adopted in honour of Pertinax. Okay, so that gives us that does give yeah. us some idea. Then obviously there was a respect there, and therefore you're not going to respect the person who did in for your did in for Pertinax. But the second question was how Severus afforded could afford to pay the army, and where he got all the money from. And it's it's I think it kind of folds back into that. How did he reverse the austerity reforms? Because when Pertinax gets in, he realises he hasn't got the cash to do certain things he wants to do. He knows full well the treasury is well and truly empty after Commodus has just spent everything. And then we have this curious scenario where we've got uh, Severus really just making hay with, with the finances. Can we take from that a criticism of Pertinax in any way? No, no, not at all. I think Pertinax was very, one of his downfalls... I think was because he was uh, very sensible. He came to power. He saw that a lot of money had been spent. Apparently, there was only a million sesterces or there was a million left in the treasury. I think normally you expect that to be about 50 million. Yeah, there, was there was clearly there was a nothing. lot of... Yeah, there was nothing there. A lot of money had been spent. So that's when Pertinax, in the three months that he was emperor for, he actually sold off a lot of Commodus's uh, mm. possessions in order to raise enough money to go into the treasury again and he he raised uh, the value of 
the coinage again yeah. to try and put trust yeah. in it. I think personally, he just had a very different approach yeah. to Severus. Yeah. So obviously, he was more of austere means. We've got to do this. This is yeah. how we're doing it. Severus came from the point of view of, we need, I need the army. They are clearly a very important force. Absolutely, yeah. So he took a very different approach. It doesn't mean he didn't respect Pertinax in any way. It just, he had a very different approach. Um, Severus takes the coinage and debases it. Now, mm-hmm. that means yes. effectively you take away, and I, I until recently I didn't know what that meant, it, it means that you lessen the value of the coin in terms of the precious metal in it. Yes. So it becomes more of a token coin than it actually becomes a real coin. Now, if you want to go into the economics of it, feel free to, because I, I tried to and I, I got a headache very quickly. The whole point is that if you debase currency, and he did so, he debased it by around, the, the estimates are, I've read, sort of 60%. So you reduce the actual precious metal content of the coin or the coins by that much. And what that means is that it gives a very, very short temporary shock to the economy. It was great for dealing with an initial problem he had, which was he had no money. So when he debased the currency, it put approximately 532 million denarii back into the circulation. And this came back later on uh, after he he died. And this is one of the things that people ask to what extent. Mm was the third century crisis sort of in a way manufactured or helped by um, Severus. And you think, well, perhaps in terms of economy, yeah, it kind of does start because I think it's Caracalla who takes this another level because his dad did it. And it's, <laughs> it doesn't end well, put it that way. Yeah. A debasement is definitely one of the forms of finance that Severus used. I think in, uh, importantly as well, this may have been another reason, but uh, his campaigns in the East, so any booty that obtained from that, obviously the troops would get some, but that may have been another source. And again, if you kill or confiscate uh, the wealth of your opponents as well, that would have uh, another boost, shall we say, to your finances. Thanks very much for for that answer. I think we've covered there really where the responsibility, how he was about able to pay for the things he paid for, all the developments with the army, which they set up their pay, shorten the service, was able to really keep the troops happy because that's how I think... Severus saw the empire through the lens of his troops. The third question is is an expected question because it's a very good question. And that is, did Septimus receive any pushback by rivals due to his provincial status and Punic heritage? You do have some stories, uh, definitely in the more notorious, shall we say, Scriptores Historia Augusta, which is one of the sources used for Severus, but it's really, I'd say, not very reliable. And it has more the fantastical stories where some people do say things about his accent but to be honest I think the main thing was nothing to do with uh, or very little to do shall we say from where he was from but it was more family as we said before uh, Albans was favoured by the senate his, his heritage went back a long line of senators it was all good for Severus, I think quite nicely, I think Dio sums it up, where one, I think it's Dio or Herodian, one of them says the story how one senator called Auspex went up to Severus when, importantly, I should, I, we didn't cover it, but I should have said Severus, one of his moves to make himself more appealing, shall we say, to those who may not have been so keen on him, was to have himself posthumously, posthumously adopted by Marcus Aurelius. So he had himself adopted 
and he became known as the son of Marcus Aurelius, which I think is a bit controversial. But again, this shows how he's trying to make himself more appealing to people. And apparently Auspects, uh, one of the senators, went up to him and said, oh, congratulations on finally finding a father implying that, you know, his current father was a nobody and Severus's father hadn't gone into government in any way. So he was effectively a nobody. So really it's not, I think, where you're coming from. It's it's your uh, your family and uh, the right. connections that you have. He did have connections, but his father was not in politics. The fourth question, did any of the other Severan dynasty develop leptis? So those that followed him, to his, I think he's his son, and then there's a break, and there's a few others that are involved in the Severan dynasty. Did they have much involvement in Leptis? His son finished off the building program that Severus started. So the right. uh, Basilica Severan complex was dedicated uh, about five years after Severus's death in AD 216. So that was dedicated by Caracalla. So Caracalla did finish off his father's project for him in Lepkis. But no, none of the uh, other members, because the other members are really more associated with the East. You, you automatically assume that they're being in, kind of inherited. And I read that Caracalla, like you said, had uh, undertaken some of them. But mm. like you say perhaps it was something that there wasn't, there wasn't that tie as, as much as obviously with, with Severus. Yes, I don't think the connection with the other Severan members was as strong. Uh, if anyone wants to correct me on that, please feel free. <laughs> it's, Severus is where my knowledge, unfortunately, I, I tend to look at Severus. And then obviously, as we all do, I tend to stop at the end of Severus. <laughs> if you think that we're not right on something or you think, oh, actually, I can add a bit more value by telling you this, please do. Just be polite about it. That's all we ever ask, or it's all I ever ask. Always a learning experience. Someone asks a question from a different perspective, and you think, oh, I hadn't thought of it from that point of view. <laughs> that kind of brings us up until the end of, of this episode. And Maria, I don't know if there's anything else that we've missed or anything you, you would like to say or anything uh, in addition to what we've discussed. No, I mean, I think obviously we've, we've covered a lot of material, yeah. uh, a, a lot of material. So if anyone has any further questions or if there's anything that anyone is interested in and they would like uh, us to focus on in particular, please let us know. Because obviously I'm interested in Severus and Lepkis, but I'd be interested to know what other people are particularly interested in. Yeah. Is it the, the family dynamics? Is it something to do with Lepkis? I'm interested what 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 you guys are interested in really absolutely you can get me on on twitter at ancient blogger and maria your your twitter handle at maria t lloyd and you'll be able to see because again if you find one of us you'll probably find the other one because we'll be sharing this episode and various tweets we've shared in the past sort of week or two so please please get in touch i think that pretty much sums it up and i just again maria i just want to say thank you very much uh, in case you you won't be aware of this because um why would you but initially we recorded about 40 minutes and then it, it broke. So we, uh, <laughs> this is sort of the second uh, second attempt and I hope it, it ran it ran well enough. And I hope if you've listened to this, you've enjoyed it. Like I say, if you've got any questions, get in touch. You'll be able to find episode notes at uh, ancientblogger.com when this is put up. And you can also you'll find other stuff there, my links to my YouTube, um, mm -hmm. Facebook, you know, Instagram, all that kind of thing. And you can obviously get me on Twitter at Ancient Blogger. Uh, Maria, last, I suppose, last, I give you the last words. Oh, thank you. I wish I know. No I, pressure. I, I don't have any last words apart from Lepkis and Service are very interesting topics. I'm delighted to uh, help anyone and talk to anyone who's interested about them. If you've got any questions, please don't hesitate to send them my way. I'm always happy to help. 
Brilliant. Thanks again. Look, anyone listening, appreciate it's been a bit of a longer episode than normal. Thanks for staying with us. And more important than anything else, uh, keep safe and stay well. Thanks. Bye, everyone.